All right, Two Cities Church. It is an exciting time to be at Two Cities Church, and there's many reasons for that. If you're new, it's a great time to be new because we're all kind of being new together in this building, whatever this means. We've been in this building now, if you're new, for six weeks, and here's what's interesting, and I'm just trying to figure it out with you, okay? So I'm just gonna tell you kind of what we're experiencing. Since we got in this building six weeks ago, we have grown by 1,000 people, okay? I know, it's exciting, well, yeah. So we're excited about that, but, but we have like, we have like, I have, we have one major question. Who are you? Okay, that's coming around. Where did you come from? Where did you go? Where did, no, I'm just kidding. No, we don't know, where'd you come from? You know, why you're here? Uh, we're excited that you're here. We want you to take your next step. That's why we're talking about the weekender. So here, okay, do the math. About 800 new adults, 200 new kids. That's how it breaks out. So out of the 800 adults, 230 of you are coming to this weekender. Amen. We're excited. Yes. But 800 minus 230 is still a lot of you need to come. Okay. And so I want to let you know about this. Okay. This coming weekend, the 26th and the 27th, I want to invite you and your family to the weekender. What is the weekender? Let me just tell you what it's not. Okay. It's helpful to know what things are not. The Weekender is not a theology class, although, yes, we're going to tell you what we believe. We always try to make the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things, but it's not a theology class. It's not a membership class, okay? Yeah, I, we think membership's great. You could take your next step toward membership afterwards if you want to, but that's not what it's there for. It's not even a connections class, although even though you don't listen to me sometimes on this, it's okay. If you don't get in a group and on a serving team, you really won't get all that you could out of our church, but it's not even about that. If our mission here is to make and mobilize disciples in an environment of prayer and worship, we can't disciple you, we can't come alongside you and help you disciple your family if you're not in our church and we don't know who you are. So I hope you'll, we've got plenty, we're, we're just gonna figure it out together. We've got plenty of space, make it hard on us. Sign up for the Weekender, get in, we're super excited. Secondly, for those of us who've been around for a little bit, you got this prayer guide last week, okay? So I don't know if you've got, you didn't have to bring it back to church, but you got your prayer guide. I don't know if you noticed this, but on Wednesdays, we're fasting together as a church. If you didn't know that, gotcha. You didn't do the prayer guide this week, okay? I gotcha. It's okay. We want you to take your first step, your next step, and sometimes the humiliating thing is you gotta go, it's a baby step for me. Some of you, I've never fasted in my whole life. That's okay. Wherever you are, that's where you start. We're saying, hey, on Wednesdays, what if you skipped breakfast and lunch? If you can't handle that, just skip one of them. And if you can't do Wednesday, do a different day. The whole idea with fasting is I give up food to go deeper with God. Me and my community group, we did this this week and we were texting each other throughout the day, you know, how's it going, how's the fasting going? And here's what you'll realize when you don't eat for a meal or two, you're going to experience physical hunger. That physical hunger should remind you of your spiritual hunger. Anyway, hope you'll join us in this journey. Guys, I'm gonna say it till you're tired of hearing me say it. Or maybe at least until you go, maybe he's serious about this. We are going to make and mobilize disciples in an environment of prayer and worship. That's what we're gonna do. So if we're gonna be, have an environment of prayer and worship, this prayer guide comes alongside, hopefully, to help serve you and your family and your community group. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our series. Lord, thank you for the men and women in here. We want to be an environment of prayer and worship, but just not this room. We want every room that we're in, whether it's the dining room table or the bedroom with our kids before we go to bed at night or wherever it is, would you create environments of prayer and worship? of dependence and adoration, Lord. Lord, we pray for all the new people. There are, the, people are afraid to go from unknown to known. I get that, Lord. And we pray that many people would take their next step to get deeply connected to community. We know from scripture that it takes a church to raise and disciple a Christian. We pray that many more, even this weekend, would take their next step in Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's three things that I gotta tell you just at the beginning today about the church. We're gonna be talking about the church for six more weeks, so get used to it. And what I wanna do is at the beginning, just kinda tell you guys different things about the church that I want you to know. And here's three things. Okay, first thing, and I thought about this a lot, okay, and how I was gonna word this, so I hope this hits you. But the most important thing about any church is what every true church has in common. Did you hear what I said? The most important thing about any church, and there's like 500 here in Winston. The most important thing about any church is what every true church has in common. Though that's good to know. So, you, you know, 
If it's a true church, it's going to preach the Bible. If it's a true church, it's going to have baptism in the Lord's Supper. If it's a true church, it's going to deal with sin. If it's a true church, it's going to make disciples. If it's a true church, it's going to sing praises to God. You get it. There's a second thing about the church you got to know, okay? Every church is different. So the most important thing about any church is what they all have in common, what's the same. But every church is different, right? In fact, that's why you choose a church. There's lots of churches that have everything. You choose a church based on what's different. Sometimes it's the location. I want something downtown. I want something in the suburbs. I want something in the country. Sometimes it's the leadership. The gift set of the leaders in that church you benefit from. Sometimes it's the people in the church because they have their own passions. And okay, this has got a lot of college students. We got a big medical community. There's a third thing I want you to know. So every church is the same and what's most important. And every church is different. And that means they have different temptations and struggles. And you get that. The third thing is there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? If you found the perfect church, please do not join it because you would ruin it, okay? <laughs> Two Cities Church is a perfect example of an imperfect church. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I want to talk to you, and we've been looking at what Jesus has to say to the church, which is what he actually has to say to different churches because every church has different struggles. There's seven churches, guys, in the next, you know, we got six weeks left, including this week. Sometimes he commends, sometimes he confronts, sometimes he comforts. There are only two churches that Jesus does not confront them about anything, and one of them, if you'll type to Revelation chapter two, verse eight, we're gonna meet today. The church at Smyrna. Okay, it's only the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia that he has nothing negative to say. Now, do you want to know why? You probably don't want to know why because you're not going to like the reason. I didn't like the reason. Okay, the, the two churches that are doing the greatest that Jesus has nothing negative to say about, guess what? They're both suffering immensely. Oh, you don't want me to say it. The suffering churches, this is true biblically, this is true historically, this is true globally. The suffering churches are the strongest churches. Why? Because suffering does two things to the church. It purifies it and it unifies it. What do I mean by it purifies it, right? Okay, if this church really started to suffer, all of you casual cultural Christians, here's what you'd be doing. Well, good luck with all of that. When the church, it, when the church is suffering, it purifies the church. You don't have time, oh, and it unifies the church. You don't have time to worry about your goofy personal preferences. You just don't have, you don't have time. When, when the church is unified, it's, I mean, think about the same thing with a nation, right? Remember when 9-11 happened? It's like everyone, we have an enemy, and we're all suffering, and Bush's approval rating was at 86%. It's like, why? It's like, because we just, we gotta be united. We have a common enemy. Today I want to read to you the shortest and the most straightforward letter of all the seven letters to the church at Smyrna. Look here, Revelation chapter two, verses eight through 11, it's real short, okay? Imagine this, guys, you're, guys, you're, you're the pastor of the church, you're the leader of the church, guys, we got a letter from Jesus. Great, what is this, I'm sure it's encouraging, let's see it. Okay, here's what it says. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Okay, I'm encouraged so far. I know your tribulation. You can just write pain, problems, pressures, persecution. And your poverty. You're in pain and you're poor. But you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, Jesus, I'm not super encouraged. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, but the devil's about to throw you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have tribulations. Like did Jesus not win or did Jesus not read how to win friends and influence people? This isn't encouraging. Look, maybe it'll get better. Oh, here it goes. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna, the church of Smyrna is being attacked. Every church whether it's aware of it or not, is always being attacked. The question is just how is the church attacked? There are three ways. You may, if you're interested in this, may want to write this down. I'm going to return to this week in and week out. There are only, always, three ways the church is attacked. 
First, the church's mind is attacked through false teaching. We will not deal with that today, but we will deal with that actually next week. And the church basically begins to believe and therefore behave just like the world. They no longer have anything to encourage and challenge and equip the church with. They no longer have anything to the world to say. They lose the gospel. We see that all the time, okay? I could just take you in our city or anywhere around the nation and go false teaching, false teaching, false teaching. Okay, you got it. Second thing is worldliness. So if you think about it, the first attack is on the mind, the second attack is on the soul. And it just says, don't be different and don't be distinct and just have the same values. Say that you believe all the things that you believe in your mind, okay? But have a different value system. Have the value system of the world. And that happens all the time. And then the world loses its distinction. And if you wanna make a difference, you gotta be different, okay? Now here's the interesting thing. Satan likes to use those two strategies first, and for most churches and most Christians, they work. When they don't work, he moves into the third category, persecution, which is against the body. Or for us, a lot of times, just against the emotions. I want you to see today that what Jesus is going to speak, he's going to speak to a church that is suffering. For some of you, this is a sermon for today. Like, you're like, you get it. You're like, no one even knows, or I'm going through so much, and I'm suffering. And so, I don't know what percentage of you. But some of you, this sermon is for today, and you're like, it's for me. Thank you, Kyle. That's what I needed. Um, For a lot of you, this is not a sermon for today. It's for tomorrow. I mean, I read this passage. I mean, could you imagine, okay? You read this passage, and just like you're getting ready to preach on this, you think, what do you say to? What do you say to you? Life's pretty comfortable, Things are going well. You're busy and excited about the future, not experiencing a lot of suffering. As a church, we're in a brand new building. I mean, how do you talk about facing death and being slandered? Well, we're gonna figure it out together. But suffering is one, it's interesting, as I've been teaching the Bible week in and week out in this church now for seven and a half years, I've been surprised by two themes. Theme number one, suffering. Theme number two, sex. How often they come up? And both of you, so you're like, I'm tired of you talking about both of them. Okay, great. Um, I think the reason is, uh, why does the Bible talk so much about suffering and so much about sex? Because God cares a lot about our pain and our pleasure. I want you to know this about suffering. And you have to know this today, by the way. We'll get to this later, I think, if we have time. But the time to get ready for suffering is now. Right? You negotiate in peacetime, and you get ready for suffering before you suffer. So there's certain things that you have to know now. So here's, here's a theology of suffering from God's perspective. Suffering is part of God's strategy. That, that's, that takes an element of faith. You need, you need to see that in Scripture, see that in the life of Job, see that in the life of Christ. Or maybe another way to say it, God has a purpose in your pain and a lesson in your loss. Now, it's very hard to say, you know, I don't have, the Bible doesn't give it, I don't therefore have the micro answers to your questions of why me, why now, why this? I don't know that. We do know that all suffering serves two major purposes, and that's really easy to answer from the Bible. Why is there suffering in the world, which is, by the way, called theodicy, a defense of God in the face of suffering? That's easy to answer. The answer is all suffering, the purpose of all suffering is your maturity in God's mission. Or your good as defined by scripture and God's glory. Those are easy to answer, not easy to emotionally accept, but from scripture, easy to answer. What I wanna do with our time left is I want us to look at the church of Smyrna because Smyrna, by the way, if you hear, you can kind of hear it in the word, Smyrna, Smyr, Myrrh, Myrrh was made there, okay? Now Myrrh was a flower that when crushed became an oil, And all the women are like, yes, it was the first essential oil. There it is, okay? (laughs) You're like, I'm listening. He has my attention, okay? Um, It's interesting because, and most people notice this, myrrh is crushed and therefore has a beautiful fragrance that comes from being crushed. The church at Smyrna is crushed and is beautiful in God's sight because of that and in that moment. Smyrna's an interesting place. Smyrna, a lot of famous people from Smyrna. Homer's from Smyrna. Not that Homer, okay, not Homer Simpson. No, the guy who wrote the Iliad, the Odyssey, that Homer. Polycarp, okay, you probably never heard of Polycarp, but Polycarp was one of the first famous bishops. He was discipled by 
um, John. Uh, Smyrna is, is what's called a second city. So it's like the second best city in its province. kind of thing. So it was like the second best city in Asia Minor. Ephesus was the best city. We talked about it last week. It was the first city. Ephesus was Charlotte. Smyrna was Raleigh, right? Charlotte's like, we've got the Hornets and we've got the Panthers. And Raleigh's like, we have the Hurricanes. For those of you who watch hockey. Um, it was the second city. And what I want you to see here with our time that we have left is I want you to see what Jesus says to a church that is deeply suffering but is being faithful. The first thing Jesus does is he tells them about him, okay? Look here. This is in uh, verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the, of the first and the last who died and came to life. So this is what Jesus does. He meets you where you are with who he is. That is such a deep idea. I'll try to return to it later. But, but basically, he, at, with every church... He doesn't ex explain who he is the exact same way. He takes an attribute of himself that you most need to know in the moment. So first and last, here's what he's saying. Let me try to bring it down. Uh, he's saying this, I was there at the beginning and I will be there at the end, which means I'm with you every step of the way. It's another way for God to say, I don't change, which is good because everything else does change, right? You change and you probably should change and you probably need to change. One, one, one of my um, personal pet peeves, I don't know if they still do high school yearbooks, but remember your high school yearbook? Do you remember what your girlfriend wrote or your boyfriend wrote on the back cover of it or maybe your best friend wrote? Never change. It's like... I'm 17. All I want to do is change. We should change. God never changes, and that's the comfort. The comfort is that though everything in your life changes, God is the one constant. Jesus comes, and he reveals himself. He says, I am the first, and I am the last. And then he says this. Follow me here. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Now imagine this. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. It's one thing to have tribulation, which I told you earlier, problems, pressures, pain, persecution. It's another to have those and be poor. Right? Some of you will never understand and never have understood what it is to be poor. When horrible things come into your life and you also don't have the money to deal with them, it is a whole nother level of problem. Jesus is going to show us a couple things today that I think are really important to know about suffering. But in larger part, they're just a good thing to know about the Christian message and the Christian faith and the Christian walk and being a Christian disciple. Here's the first one. You saw it in verse 9. I'll just unpack it for us. Following Christ will affect you financially. Amen. Okay, this is just, it's just very simple. Now, I can, we can talk about all the reasons why, but following Christ affected the church at Smyrna financially. They're in their poverty. They're not just poor because they're poor. We'll talk about that in a minute. They're poor in this situation because they're following Christ. We don't know all the reasons. Did the government do something to them because they wouldn't worship Caesar? We don't know. Did they lose their business? Did they lose their dignity and culture? Okay, I, I, we don't know. What we know is they were poor in large part because they were following Jesus. Now, obviously, everyone who follows Jesus isn't going to be poor. But everybody who follows Jesus will have their finances affected. Or here's just the way Jesus says it. It is going to cost you to follow Christ. But that seems so strange, even though that's, that's, that's Christianity 101. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. And we continually are looking for a costless Christianity. Let me say it another way. If we're talking about finances, here's what, here's what I know about you and you know about me and you know about you, okay? Is that your faith is shown or shows up in your finances. I mean, God created the world and it can't be any other way, sorry. What you believe, you can lie about or you can think you believe certain things, but what you believe will always, always, always show up in your budget. So if you like believe in the stock market, okay? It's going to show up. You're gonna like invest there. Several years ago, there were those of you who believed in cryptocurrency. And you're very sad right now. No. And, and, and it was a wrong belief. But no, you, but you did that, right? 
anywhere, I mean, one of the questions you could ask about where you're spending your money is what am I believing? Okay, but, but maybe here's just something to think about. Why, if I follow Christ, will it affect my finances? One answer is, well, because you can't meet Jesus and have any of your life, any dimension of your life stay the same. So that makes sense. But then just if you just take like the 101 things the Bible says about money, possessions, wealth, property, I don't know, any of those. And you just, you just said, okay, I, I, I'm gonna read the Bible and tithe means tithe and tithe means 10%. So I'm going, just think about this for a second if you did this. And you said, well, then I'm gonna give 10% of my hard-earned money to God's purposes in the world. Well, then you'd have to look around. I mean, don't say this out loud, but then you look around at somebody who makes the exact same amount of money as you, who's not a Christian, and go, I can't live like them. Because, I mean, I've already decided that 10% is going to go to the kingdom of God, so I am already, I'm already behind. Maybe what the world would say, I'm gonna live off of 90% of what everybody else who makes what I make, that's gotta affect my house. Maybe my car. And then if you, you know, do things like, I don't know, have, a, you know, a value for what the Bible teaches on simplicity or sacrifice. So anyway, let, let me just be clear. Following Christ will affect your finances. That's the first thing Jesus says. Well, let me show you the second thing. Here's what he says. Well, let me say, sorry, one or, one or two more things about that. We do not believe in the prosperity gospel or the poverty gospel. The prosperity gospel says the more God loves you, the wealthier you'll be. And the poverty gospel says the poorer you are, the more God loves you. There is no inherent virtue in being poor or being rich. In fact, did you notice he says in the text, he says, you're I know you're poverty, but you're rich. It's like, well, that can't, how can that be true at the same time? I mean, we know that you actually can't be poor and rich at the same time unless there are different types of poverty and different types of riches. What is he saying? You are financially poor, but you are spiritually rich. Listen, there, there are four types of people in the world. This is kind of an interesting matrix to see life through. There are people who are financially rich and they are spiritually poor. What do we call them? Americans. <laughs> they are the hardest people on earth to reach. Because when all of your physical and all of your social and all of your emotional and all of your temporal needs are met, it is very hard to feel your spiritual needs. There are people who are financially rich and they're also spiritually rich. That is a very, 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 very small amount of Christians through all of world history and even today but they tend to be the Christians that get the gospel to go all over the rest of the world. There are people who are financially poor, but they are spiritually rich. Who is that? Most Christians everywhere else outside of America. In fact, let me tell you what happens, because we want you to go on a mission trip, and you'll go on a mission trip at some point, I'm sure, but I've led some, been on a lot of mission trips. Let me tell you the two phases of a mission trip, if you've never been on one. Here's phase one of a mission trip. We get off the plane, it's, we're in Africa, we're in India, it doesn't matter where we are. We're in Central America, come on, come on. Everyone gets off the plane. The first thing everyone does, <gasps> look at the poverty. They have to go, they don't have water in their house. And you, go, you visit someone's home, did you see that there were six of them living in that one room? You're there for a couple of days. Did you notice everybody here wears the same outfit every day because they only have one outfit? And then you have to, you have to just go through that. Everybody does. Every person who does a first short-term mission trip goes through the, I can't believe the poverty. Here's step two of every short-term mission trip. I can't believe how joyful they are. I can't believe all of these Christians here are happier than me, even though they have so much less than me. They are financially poor, but they are deeply spiritually rich. And then there are people who are financially poor and they are spiritually poor. And guess who they are? All the people left all over the world who've yet to hear the gospel. Let me just give you a phrase because I want us to learn more about world missions. There's something called unreached, unengaged people. Here's what that means. No Bible, no believer, no church building. Why are the unreached people still unreached? Because they're very hard to reach. You're like, that was very simple. Yeah, it's not a clever name. They're called unreached for a reason. But why are they so hard to reach? Do you want to live in northern India? 
do you have any idea what it's like to live in northern India? I knew a guy who lived in northern India. He said the electricity worked some of the time. My friend who was a missionary in India, he said, you know what, Kyle? He said, when I'm in America, he said, the living is so easy, but the people's hearts are so hard. He said, when I was in India, the living was so hard, but the people's hearts were so soft. Following Christ will affect you financially. This is something every Christian has always known. Secondly, I want you to see this. Turn with me back to verse nine again. Here's what it says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Here it is. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, second point. You're like, this is not gonna be a super encouraging sermon for you guys. Um, following Christ will affect you socially or relationally. I mean, do you see slander there? Slander basically means to make false or damaging statements to hurt a person's reputation. Okay, this was cancel culture in the first century. Now, I think some of us, we, we understand that, that following Christ is going to affect us financially. I mean, your mom taught you it, your dad taught you it, your youth pastor taught you it, your uncle, you just learned it. If I get a dollar, I give a dime. If I get 10, I give a dollar. If I get 100, I give 10, you got it. And in some ways, that was easy for you to get. This is the hard one, right? Because some of you just wanna be liked. Like you, like, you know, you want everyone to like you, which is the, dr the immature dream of a 14-year-old girl. That's what that is. Everybody will like me is the immature dream of a 14-year-old boy or girl. Here's what Jesus is telling us. Not everybody is going to like you. And here's another part of that. Not everyone is going to understand you. And it's hard on us, because Christians, we wanna, we, we wanna be understood, we're often misunderstood, people say things about us that aren't true. Guys, this is ancient. So this group of people in Smyrna, along with many Christians in the first century, let me tell you what they said about them. They called them atheists. Now that doesn't make sense to us, because we're like, wait, no, they worship Jesus. Yes, but they would only worship one God instead of many gods, and they wouldn't put any idols or images of their gods out there. Oh, so they were called an atheist, yes. Secondly, they were called cannibals. You're like, okay, I don't get that. They misunderstood the Lord's Supper and what Christians were doing. And they said, you eat people's body and you drink their blood, you are a cannibal. Now they weren't, they were misunderstood. They couldn't explain themselves. They didn't, no one wanted to listen, okay. They were thought of being against the nuclear family. Why? Because Christians were the first people to take familial language, brother and sister, and to use it outside of the nuclear biological family of origin. They were considered against the government. Christians aren't against the government. We wanna pray for our leaders. We wanna live at peace. But they wouldn't worship Caesar. Okay, today, how does this work? Well, there's many things that people are gonna say. First of all, they're gonna call us intolerant. And, and I'm tempted to say a lot about that, but I'm gonna preach a whole sermon on tolerance and intolerance in a few weeks because one of the churches Jesus says to them, you tolerate what you shouldn't. So some churches are too tolerant. Yes, we'll get there. But just know that we're, we're, we're gonna be called intolerant because we can't affirm and celebrate all beliefs, perspectives, lifestyles, and ideologies. Secondly, we're gonna be called narrow-minded or I don't know, primitive or archaic or I, who knows, prudish, I don't know what it is. And that's because we believe in something instead of everything. We're gonna be called, and some of you, by the way, it's okay, I, but some of you are going to misunderstand this when I say this right now. We're gonna be considered against women's rights because the pro-abortion, pro-death, pro-choice movement has made abortion and put it in the category, wrongly, of women's health care and women's rights. Dare I say, no one has done more for women than Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we, we're gonna get more into this in the weeks to come, but we're going, now here's what you have to do. When you're, and the more you get in leadership and the more public of a person you are and the more people that you have under you and the more public, you know, I've had to learn all these lessons. 
You have to learn to trust God with two things. Number one, you need to learn to trust God with your salvation. That's, that's how you become a Christian. Lord, give you my sin, give you myself. I, I can't earn it, you know. We, we get that, hopefully. We talk about that a lot. We'll talk about that at the end. But after you trust God with your salvation, there's another movement that a lot of people haven't gotten to, and it's, God, I trust you with my salvation. Here's movement two, especially if you're a leader. I trust God with my reputation. Some of you are so concerned with protecting your reputation instead of building your character. Now, he gives us, he pulls back the veil, um, John does, and he tells us who's behind the slander. Look, I'll show you this. This is really interesting. Verse nine. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, look at this, but are a synagogue of Satan... Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So basically, he uses both, by the way, the devil and Satan as two different names for the same person. He's telling us this, that behind the slandering is Satan. Behind what looks like our enemies is our true enemy. Let me say it this way. Um, You and I, if you're a Christian, we have a spiritual, personal, intelligent enemy. I thought about all four of those words for a while. We have a personal, spiritual, intelligent enemy. And you actually know this. You won't want to admit this, and you don't have to share this with anybody. Just think about this just between you and me right now. Think about all of your temptations. When you think about your temptations, you'll, if you're really honest, you'll go, it's so interesting when they happen. It's like at the worst time, or maybe the best time for them to happen, for me to do something. And they feel They feel uniquely like, to me, like it's what my dad struggled with. You might even, you know, if you could be this honest, you might say something like this. It feels like it was designed for me. It's like it was. We have a personal, intelligent, spiritual enemy. It's good to know this because then you don't have to be mad at your coworker. She's not your enemy. He's not your enemy. Look, when the Bible says love your enemies, it's talking about people who hate you. Not anyone you hate. I mean, from from the Christian perspective looking out, we have zero enemies except for Satan. When the Bible talks about our enemies, it's talking about people who don't like us. And the reason we can have compassion on them is because we're able to see the enemy behind the enemy. Then there's other something that's sad that you see in this. He says he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Could you imagine if that was, you know, the name of a church? Oh, this is synagogue of, this is first church of Satan, you know, okay? The synagogue of Satan. Here's what he's saying, that sometimes persecution happens from within the church. That's not as common. Like, it's normally outside, and it's by the world, and we'll try to talk about that in a little bit, too. But, but every once in a while, and thank God this has not happened much here, okay? We've had a couple little cases here and there. But it's when, like, there's, like, persecution from within. I mean, this will drive especially, I mean, I've seen this. This will wear out pastors. It's like, my deacons are persecuting me? Are you kidding me? It's like, oh, the, oh, I get it. Oh, that makes sense. The couple that I did all their premarital counseling with and we also married and we also commissioned their kid, they're turning on us? The rogue staff person? Are you, like, what? This happens a lot more than you might realize. And people from within become divisive and have their own agendas. Jesus tells us that you will be affected financially and you will be affected socially in following Christ. But he wants to comfort us. I want to show you this. He says this, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus wants us to expect and therefore, and therefore, prepare for suffering. Our problem is we do not expect suffering. Most of us have some version of my life is gonna go like this across time. And it's going to get better and I'm going to be healthy and my kids are going to be well behaved and we're gonna make more money every year. And all of us think that somehow we're gonna die at 90 years old with the Bible on our chest in our sleep. We have this, I I don't know what happened. I don't know where where it's from, but the expectations that we have for our life are wrong. 
Jesus says that we need to not be surprised. We're not, we're not pursuing suffering, but we should not be surprised by suffering. But then here's the other thing about suffering. The time to get ready for suffering is now. Um, my biblical counseling professor in seminary, he was a great guy, walked with a lot of people through suffering. I remember he was talking to a group of us, we were young seminarians at the time. He said, guys, if somebody is deeply suffering, if you're a pastor and someone's deeply suffering, he says, and you bring them in the midst of their suffering, a book on suffering. He said, the best thing you should do is light that book on fire in front of them and warm them with the book. Because you can't learn about it when you're in it. And so what you need is you need an understanding of God that's, we said this on our Vision Sunday, that's better than your sin and bigger than your suffering, and you need that before you suffer. And then the other thing that you need is you need Christian community, you need relationships. So whenever somebody says, I don't need a community group, I know what they mean. I'm not suffering. That's what they mean. They don't, what they say is, well, we're busy and... The kids with amusements and activities and athletics and academics, and we can't fit it in our schedule. It's like, okay. I've never heard a suffering person say that. Uh, you know, a suffering person's like, I definitely need this. So, so for example, you, there's different types of insurance, right? When, you know, you doctors, when you become residents and fellows, all these guys show up who want to sell you disability insurance. Disability insurance, disability, right? We know about disability insurance. And you know about life insurance. You have your kid, everyone's like, life insurance, life insurance, life insurance. You get your first job. How's their health insurance, health insurance, health insurance? Okay, fair enough. I got one for you, relational insurance. Relational insurance is what are the relationships that I'm investing in right now so when the proverbial poo of life hits the fan? Sorry for the illustration. You're, you're ready for it. When, when suffering happens, you're going to need God and a group. Jesus says a couple things to the suffering. Number one, he says, I know. I didn't point this out, but if you go back to verse eight, he says, or verse nine, he says, I know your tribulation. Do you know that sometimes you just need to know that Jesus knows? Well, this is actually true in all of life, right? Like if something happens, have you ever had this? A couple of you have had this happen. Where you get such bad news, you need to tell people in person. It's like, oh no, driving six or seven hours because this isn't a phone call. This is a surprise mom and dad in the middle of the night to tell them this. And most times when you have really bad news, people can't fix it, obviously. And you know they can't fix it and they know they can't fix it. But you're like, I just needed to know that now you knew, right? That's a big moment in people's lives. I got the diagnosis and you know. Our marriage is a mess and you know our daughter's breaking our heart, and I, we haven't been able to tell anyone for six months, but now someone else knows. So the first thing Jesus wants you to just know is that he knows. The second, do you see that he says, don't fear? He's like, you're going to suffer, right? This is, like, this is an encouraging message. You're going to suffer and then go to prison, but don't worry, you're going to die. It's like, uh, okay. Um, part of what makes suffering so much worse than it needs to be is we're afraid of it. One of the reasons is we think about the future apart from the grace of God. And you cannot, God does not waste his grace. He'll give you grace in the moment when you're suffering. But some of us, right, some of, have you ever thought, some of you, there's different, we're in different places in this room. Some of you have suffered immensely and every once in a while you, you read the book of Job and you're like, is God and Satan conspiring against me? You, almost everybody will feel like that once or twice in their life. Is God and Satan up there conspiring against me? But then, have you ever not suffered very much? And you're kind of like, is he gonna notice? You ever worried about that? God's gonna look at one of the, you know, Gabriel or Michael and be like, you see John down there? Go get him. He's not gotten what he needs. We are afraid of suffering because we think about the future apart from the grace of God in it. But then he says one other thing. I want you to see this. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. We talked about that. Behold, the devil's about to throw you in prison. 
that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Here it is, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. It's very simple, it's not easy to follow, but Jesus' advice in the face of suffering is do not fear and be faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? It means I believe God's promises even in my pain. Now here's the hard thing, it's very hard to find people who are faithful today. Faithful means I keep going. I don't quit, I don't give up, I don't give in. See, we live in a time where, oh honey, I'm sorry, you don't like your college, go ahead and transfer. You don't like your job, go ahead and quit. You don't like your city, go ahead and move. Obviously, I'm not saying that that can never happen and not be legitimate, but we live in a world where, by the way, we have let our kids get out of everything all the time. And so they never learn the stick with it faithfulness. He says, I want you to be faithful. See, here's what happens. Whenever you experience temptation or trial, either one, pain or pleasure that could take you away from Christ, you'll have to decide, am I going, there's only two options, in suffering or in temptation. Am I going to continue or am I going to compromise? And I'm just trying to tell you right now, you're gonna, make, please make this decision up. We'll walk with you, we're gonna help you, okay? You're gonna have to just decide, am I going to continue to believe what God has said or am I going to compromise? And what I'm telling you is we are, and I'm not a doomsday person, I wanna let you know this, and you already know this. When I say this, you're gonna go, yeah, this is true, Kyle. We are in the midst of a moral revolution as a society. Three things have to happen for a moral revolution to happen. Number one, what was celebrated, or let me say it, sorry, what was condemned is now celebrated. I bet you could think of a couple things that used to be condemned that are now celebrated. That's stage one. Most of us were asleep at the wheel when that happened. This isn't that bad, that's not that big of a deal. We'll let everyone do whatever they wanna do. Okay, stage two. Whatever used to be celebrated is now condemned. And you're like, yeah, why is everyone picking on me? I'm just trying to do what everyone's always done. Not anymore, you're not. Because what's condemned is celebrated and what's celebrated is condemned. And then the third one hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. Well, maybe not, maybe things will change. Those who will not celebrate will be condemned. And I'm trying to tell you today, just remember that I said this, okay? Because this is gonna be true. Just remember that I said this. There is no hiding. You're not gonna be able to, you can hide for a little bit. You're not going to be, your HR department's not going to let you hide. Are you gonna put the pronouns up or not? There's nowhere to hide. And so you just have to say, not everybody's going to like me. Not everybody's going to understand. I'm gonna be warm and winsome and humble and self-deprecating in how I do it, but I'm not going to compromise, I'm going to continue. Let me tell you what else is gonna happen to some of you and you're gonna compromise. How does, you ever heard of moral relativism, right? Moral relativism is like, I don't know what's right, I don't know what's wrong. You know, all lifestyles are fine. Let me tell you how, how ostensibly people like you in churches like this become relativists. They have a relative. It's like, how real do you want me to get right now? Your son. He wants to live an alternative lifestyle. And you raised him very differently than that. And it's all confusing. Thanksgiving's confusing, Christmas is confusing. The potential wedding's really confusing. What you do afterwards is confusing. Wouldn't it just be easier if you compromised? You're going to have to decide today that you're going to continue. You have to know today there's nowhere to hide. They're going to come for you. They're going to ask you your, your sexual ethic. Just get used to it. You're a doctor, it's coming. You're a lawyer, it's coming. I'm, it's just, it's coming. So Jesus says, here's what he says. He says, be you only have to be faithful. He says, not for very long, just till you die. Okay, Jesus. Um, you know, it's interesting because what, when, we, when bad things happen to us, what do we think? Well, here's what we normally say. This is a colloquial saying in our, in our world today. It could be worse. 
You ever heard that? Like something happens and you look and you go, well, at least we're not the Joneses. You saw what happened to the Smiths. Thank God we're not them. Could be worse. Paul doesn't do that. John doesn't do that. He never says it could be worse. He always says it's going to get a lot better. That's what he says. He says, be faithful unto death. Now, listen, this is such a strange thing. Believe me, I understand how strange it is for me to talk to you today about you getting ready to die. Okay, for most of us, this is like so strange. Like, where are we and who even talks about these things? You only get to die once. Okay? There's like a lot of things you get to do many times. You get to die one time. One of your goals for your life should be that you would die well. Obviously, that means you die trusting Jesus. How about this? What if you could die and still have your sense of humor? That wouldn't be a bad goal because of all that it would mean. What did it mean if you still have your sense of humor? I'm not bitter. I'm not hopeless. Everything isn't staked here. I can have a self-deprecating, I can make my daughter laugh on my deathbed. I'm not angry, I'm not revengeful. He says, be faithful unto death because he reminds them of one last thing. Let me show you this and we'll be done. He says this, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, I need to end as if this has been appropriate already, but I need to end in, in, in talking about something that is not for polite conversation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, you know people, right? You wouldn't talk about this at a country club dinner, what I'm about to talk about. This is not good manners, what I'm about to do. Um, it's interesting, I saw, I saw recently um, The Sound of Freedom, which I recommend you seeing. It's a movie on the horrors of sex trafficking. It's, it's hard to watch. Um, but in the movie, they talk about why they can't make any progress with the sex trafficking industry, and one of the things they said is it's not a conversation for polite conversation. It's like, do you want me to tell you what they do to six-year-old boys? No, you don't. And it's just like, okay, well then... It's very hard to get anywhere until we were able to look at something and say, this is horrible and we have to talk about it, okay? Well, that's how this passage ends. It talks about the second death, which is very horrible. Some of you have never heard of the second death, okay? The Bible, te- just like when we talked about riches and poverty, there was, rich, you know, there's two types of riches and two types of poverty. The Bible speaks of two types of life and two types of death. When you're born physically, that's your first birth. When you're born spiritually, when you become a Christian, that's your second birth, we, Billy Graham didn't come up with this phrase. We call it being born again. Um, when you die, physically, that's your first death. If you haven't trusted Christ, the Bible describes hell, Hades, the lake of fire, as the second death. Now, that's intense. So let me just show you, just so you see it real quick. So go to, go to uh, it'll be on the screen. Revelation 20, look here. I, I just don't want you to think I'm making this up. I'm quoting Revelation. The Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Okay, so there, we got the definition of it. Here's what I want you to know, and this will be a very, all of you, I know you want me to be done with my sermon, but in about 100 years, you're all gonna be glad I talked about this, okay? Christians are born twice and die once. Non-Christians are born once and die twice. And what's interesting is, you know, we, the church cares about suffering. This is why I'm talking about, this is why I'm giving 50 minutes to talk about suffering, but I want you to understand this. We care, Two Cities Church, Christians all over the world, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And so what Jesus does at the very end to people that are about to face death, he tells them, don't worry, you will escape the second death. That is our, and that sounds, to some of us who are just, we're modern and our world has shrunk to our weekly schedule and we don't think anything of eternity or the life to come, that seems not important. When you are facing death, Jesus wants you to know, death is just a doorway if you're a believer and there's nothing but good on the other side. Amen. Jesus starts, if you go back and look at this letter, and ends 
with the exact same themes, life and death. Why? Because Jesus wants you to know that I am going to come to you as I am and I am going to meet you where you are. And the other thing Jesus wants us to know, because he says at the beginning, I'm the one who died and came back to life. He wants you to know this, Christian. I have already been where you're going to go. So this is the great truth. It's like, you're going through suffering? Jesus is like, I've already been there. I don't ask people to go anywhere I haven't gone. I've already been where you're gonna go. Or you gotta go through death. I've already been where you're gonna go. Are you going to be poor? I've already been there. I know the way around. I know the way through, right? That's what you want from a tour guide in a dangerous place. Don't worry, guys. I'm here all the time. Been here. Come follow me. Oh, you're slandered? Don't worry. I was rejected by uh, the religious leaders today, the political leaders today. My family didn't understand me. The disciples didn't understand me. I've been where you've been. And at the cross, Jesus experienced the first death and the second death. See, you have to see it with eyes of faith, but Jesus died physically but he experienced the punishment and wrath of God, the second death. And so here's what Jesus says to the Christian. Listen, he says, wherever you're going, I've already been. And then he says this, and if you trust in me, I went somewhere where you will no longer have to go. I went and I experienced the full punishment of God in your place so that you, because of my life, death, and resurrection, can have the crown of life. And when you know that, it helps you to face the future without fear, and it helps you to commit to being faithful. Would you, would you bow your heads with me in just for a moment? Lord, all around this room, I just wanna give people a chance to respond. Lord, we want, the word of God is taught and given to us, not to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Lord, and we want to respond. We want to pray and obey and sing and bring, and we're gonna sing about the son of suffering in a minute. But I would imagine in a room like this, there are people all over this room who may have realized, oh my, I have only been born once. Which means I'm going to die twice. Lord, we care about all people. And if you're in here today and you want to believe, I can't make you believe, I can just set up the meeting between you and the Lord. But the Bible says that if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can escape the second death today by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. If you do that, I wanna give you an opportunity afterwards to come forward and talk to our prayer team and our elders who are on the side. Lord, we want to be a church that suffers well, Lord. Help us to know today and every day that suffering is part of your ordained strategy. That there's a purpose in the pain. There's always a lesson in the loss, Lord. And everything's working together for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.